And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, around this rotating globe. Welcome to the solstice. Solstice is very important. The Earth, as you know, makes an annual spiral, not a circle, but a spiral around the sun as we move through the galaxy at something like, uh, I think it's 240 miles per second. I think that's our speed around the center of the Milky Way. And every year we're moving through different space and different time. But as the solstice comes around, um, very interesting things happen on the planet. I'm hoping that tomorrow night in our um, disclosure show, which of course is not an accident, there's a lot of stuff going on politically right now and it's all being clustered around the solstice. So hopefully Georgia can uh, join us in our panoply of interesting, fascinating presentations by some of our uh, uh, other side of Midnight family. Um, and we're going to talk about why this time of year is really, really important, because it's kind of like the actualization, if you're looking at it metaphysically, of things that have been planted, things that have been sown, things that have been pending for the previous year or part of the spiral, like a circle and a spiral, like a wheel. With a wheel. Anyway, um, the thing that's really interesting about this night, Right now, right now, if you look up to the sky, if you're on the night side of the earth, look up to the sky. It's because you're looking in the anti-direction to the galactic center. Because in daytime, right now, the sun is in uh, Scorpio, and it's crossing the galactic midplane where the center of the galaxy and the angle of the earth nodded toward that center are at their maximum. And why is any of that important? Because there's physics involved. How do we know? Because Robert and I measured it. This is really a unique time. So ask yourself this question. Let me let me let me go pick up my little iPad here which I had bookmarked so I would have this uh, available. Why are there 14 major religious holidays all clustered in December around this date. And I'm talking things obviously like Christmas, um, Hanukkah, but there's a whole bunch of others. There's Islamic holidays, there's Orthodox Christian holidays, there's, um, uh, let me look down here, there's Wicca, of course, there's Zoroastrian holidays, there's a big one on the 26th, you know, day after Christmas. Um, there's just Catholic, which of course we would say Christian, and there's even uh, a Buddhist holiday coming up. Why are they all clustered around this time of the annual spiral? My thesis, my model, is that it's all because um, that's when this extraordinary event of uh, uh, this alignment with the center of the Milky Way galaxy, uh, basically comes into its own. So let me refresh here for a moment. Okay. So tonight, of course, is the time when that alignment is in keeping with the um, with the uh, geometry of the sun being in line with the center of the 
Milky Way Galaxy 4 million solar mass rotating 11 times per second, according to some guys out at um, uh, Berkeley, uh, is all kind of in alignment. And as you know, if you've heard me talk over the years, endlessly sometimes, alignments in this physics are crucial. We've measured them with the sun, we've measured them with eclipses, we've measured them with Venus, we've measured them with lunar eclipses. The Accutron inertial measuring system denotes on these alignments a strange tremor in the force. We're going to talk about a lot of that tonight with our with our guest, Maria, Maria Wheatley, who is making a return appearance on the other side of midnight. But before we get to that, let me do this, because something very important happened in England a few hours ago to mark this alignment and this time and an earthly event um, in World War One that Georgia was describing to us um, uh, last week. During the fighting in the mountains around Jerusalem early in December of 1917, Wesley Tudor and another British officer were discussing the war and its possible aftermath. They were on the eve of another battle. One of the men realized that his days on earth were to be shortened. I shall not come through this struggle, he said. And like millions of other men in this war, it will be my destiny to go now. You, he said to Wesley Tudor, will survive and live to see a greater and more vital conflict fought in every continent and ocean and in the air. And when that time comes, remember us. We shall long to play our part, whatever we may be, Give us the opportunity to do so, for war for us will be a righteous war. We shall not fight the material weapons then, but we can help if you will let us. We shall be an unseen but mighty army. Give us the chance to pull our weight. You still have time available as your servant. Lend us a moment of it each day, and through your silence, give us an opportunity. The power of silence is greater than you know. When these tragic days arrive, do not forget us. The next day, the speaker was killed. Wesley Tudor was severely wounded, stranded behind enemy lines. He eventually managed to get back to the British forces, and it was then that the idea of a daily moment of united prayer and silence was born, becoming known as the Silent Minute, and eventually signaled by the chiming and striking of Big Ben at nine o'clock each evening. So in honor of the silent minute, what I want all of you to do is for the next 60 seconds, give or take, just kind of sit quietly and reflect on where we are, where we are tonight on um, this planet, where we are in history, where we are in the sweep of time and space, and the alignment of this tiny, tiny speck of dust in a galaxy of 400 million stars with the object at the center of that galaxy, which literally, as measured by our science, is a portal into the unknown.
Maria Wheatley is a second-generation dowser who was taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomats. She's a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. Maria is an accomplished author of books on sacred sites and dowsing, and in 2015, Maria made a major discovery. In the Neolithic period, there was a royal priesthood of long-skulled, that's elongated people, that made Stonehenge their spiritual center, their capital. Across Europe and the British Isles, this enigmatic, long-lost civilization designed elongated-shaped monuments to reflect their skull shape. Or maybe it was the other way around? We'll talk about that. During the early Bronze Age, the long-skulled people were murdered by round-skulled people who designed round stone circles and created round barrows for the departed, reflecting, again in Maria's model, the shape of their skulls. Maria tracked down the long, elongated skull of the High Queen of Stonehenge and many others to reveal the secret history of Stonehenge. Maria Wheatley has studied Neolithic Britain and Bronze Age prehistory at Bath and Oxford University. Along other professionals, she combines her knowledge of archaeology and earth energies with state-of-the-art equipment to detect and interpret the hidden frequencies that the earth emits. She's an expert in locating and analyzing earth energies at sacred sites across Europe. Maria also has written holistic diploma courses and runs esotericcollege.com, which offers certificated courses on holistic subjects, including past life regression. Now, that's intriguing. Remind me, folks, to uh, bring that up tonight. Druid, Soul Star Astrology, Tarot, and Dowsing. Maria currently teaches advanced dowsing techniques, which are not taught anywhere else in the world. 
So you'll want to click on her website next to her picture there at the um, bio on our page, the Aberry Experience and the Esoteric College. Without further ado, Maria, welcome back on this extraordinary solstice, this winter solstice evening in the high American desert to the other side of midnight. Thank you, and happy solstice to all of your listeners. And happy solstice to you. Okay, um, let's get into this. Uh, We were talking before the show. I asked you, did you visit Stonehenge this morning? And you gave kind of like a shudder and said, "Uh, no. You want to kind of talk about what's going on at Stonehenge and why it's not really the soulful experience that it used to be? Yes, well, Stonehenge is, you know, a magnet for any solstice event, that's for sure. But there's a lot of people go there, and it can be quite hectic, and it can be very chaotic. It can be quite fun as well, because it has a festival type of uh, energy there. And But there there used to be a lot of alcohol drinking. Uh, English Heritage introduced uh, an alcohol ban. Uh, You have to pay for your parking now, so a lot of the local Druids uh, protest about that with a campaign, uh, pay to pray. (laughs) Uh, And uh, a lot of people now go to uh, a near site, 17 miles away from Stonehenge, called Averyhenge, which is the world's largest stone circle. And there's a lot of celebration going on there at the moment. So it's uh, it's not necessarily a spiritual event. These days it's more of a kind of festival event. Yeah, I remember when Robin and I were measuring Avebury with the uh, Akatron, and Graham Hancock uh, and his wife met us there, and we're sitting in the pub in front of a wonderful fire, and the instruments are outside recording, and I said to myself, you know, this is the way to do science, (laughs) a field expedition in the Red Lion pub, and we even have pictures of us sitting outside under the umbrellas, and Anyway, um, okay, so solstice, winter, this is the last winter solstice of this decade, so let's talk about Stonehenge. When I, when I asked you a few days ago if you could join us tonight, you said, surely, oh, have I got all kinds of incredible things to talk about. So what's the la- – first of all, let, let's go back to square one. You've been measuring these circles, which archaeologists have puzzled over for you know 100 years plus. What would you say is the biggest takeaway in terms of these enigmatic circles? And we'll get into their geometry in a moment. But what, why should people really look at Stonehenge tonight in a, pun intended, different light? Well, Stonehenge is the most different stone circle in all of the British Isles, indeed the world. It's unique, it's its own shape, it's its own geometry. It's set above very, very, very powerful earth energies in a huge deep aquifer. So it really absorbs all of that energy into the stones, into the environ. Sound as well, as we'll get into later, gets distorted at Stonehenge. So back back in the day, there was a lot going on in terms of unseen earth energies. The way the the priesthood and the, the spiritual people would even speak inside the monument, you couldn't hear anything outside of the monument. Just by a few centimeters, you would know what was going on at Stonehenge. So it would have been perceived as a magical place. The stones were highly 
polished, given off a kind of quartz-like effect. Today, we see them as dulled down gray sarsen stones and dull blue stones. But again, but four and a half thousand years ago, using orthodox dating, this would have been a dazzling, brilliant, colorful place. Hmm. Kind of like the pyramids of Egypt, which we now know because of the, some of the bits of the surviving casing stones were once painted. Maybe not originally, but by later cultures before the stones were all taken away to build mosques in Cairo uh, after a great earthquake. Um, and, and I think the Sphinx in Egypt also was painted, if I'm not uh, remembering uh, faultily. Well, Stonehenge was surrounded by a six-foot to a ten-foot white chalk wall. So Stonehenge, you'd have just, if you were outside of the monument complex, you'd have just seen the tops of the, the capstones, the lintels on top. And I think because there's a lot of golden and red ochre in the area that was certainly used to paint temples of stone in Orkney at the same time, there could have been a lot of colourful maybe symbols or painting on the white chalk wall. That's that's for sure. It's it's an abundance ochre there. So it would have been surrounded by this huge, huge wall, and only the chosen people would have been selected to go inside Stonehenge. It's not like Avebury. Inside Avebury, it's being calculated by the archaeologist Aubrey Bull, you could have fit thousands of people in. So it's a bit like Avebury was for the people. Stonehenge may be an exclusive area for the priesthood and the priesthood alone. So one was kind of like a village church and the other a high, high cathedral? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And it's so interesting because they have very different, you know, I'm, I'm a left brain kind of guy. I like calculating things, right? But I got to tell you, the measurements we did at Stonehenge were really, really different than what we got at Abbey. Abbey is, is, well, for instance, there were two stone circles at Abbey. And there is one biggie, well, there's multiple concentric sets of rings at Stonehenge built over many, many thousands of years successively. But what I always found intriguing before I even went there to measure it is the um, there were two stone circles at Abbey, and they were tilted off due north, the axis looking directly at the North Star, the rotational axis of the planet, by, <clears throat> wait for it, 19.5 degrees. So somebody knew something way back when. Um, we probably touched this on earlier shows, but we have new new people coming into the uh, audience all over the world all the time. So, Maria, give us a brief background on, you know, beside what I read, on, on how you got into this and how you ascertained for yourself that these are active, resonating, singing monuments. They're not just dull, dead stones. Yes, well, I began researching ancient sites because my late father was considered the, the UK's top master dowser going back to the sort of like 1980s, 1990s. So I started off be, being taught how to douse and how to really attune to, to the sites. Uh, my father inherited all the unpublished surveys of another master dowser called Guy Underwood, who rediscovered the geodetic system of Earth energies, which... Uh, 
deals with the very deep aquifer waters and, and the energies that they emit. Now, when you place standing stones above ley lines, earth energies, very deep aquifers, it's almost like they kind of absorb the earth energy and they can start to transmit it. And I've done lots of tests with people like Rodney Hale and David Webb using uh, very sensitive electromagnetic sensing equipment to have a look very deeply into how the stones behave. So if you imagine it's a bit like an acupuncture point and you're putting a standing stone into that meridian line, uh, it absorbs it and starts to transmit it in an aerial manner. And that's what our equipment recorded so we know that the standing stones behave in particular ways and can transmit energy that's what they were designed to do in the ancient past you know what's interesting is that in the modern parlance of radio and electromagnetic communications all that a device that does that is called a transducer from the latin you know trans across uh, duco to uh, to communicate um these things were the first, as far as I guess we can understand, world solid-state transducers, meaning they amplified what they were picking up and transmitted it to, to whom? Well, obviously to sensitive humans who built them to do exactly this, Right. Yes, and what we, what, what Rodney Hale and I recorded at Avebury-Henge in a stone that was in situ, that means it hasn't been you know, reconstructed and set in concrete, as many of the stones of Stonehenge and Avebury have been done so since uh, the turn of the last century. And on one particular point of the standing stone, it was emitted around about uh, 18, uh, 18 hertz. And uh, the human ear hears around 20. So so if uh, the ancient ancestors, maybe the long-skulled, elongated uh, civilization could hear at that frequency point a little bit more sensitive to our own, perhaps their perception of places like Avebury and Stonehenge was they could hear the sounds of the stones, whereas we tend to be very visual as a civilization and we look at things. You mean they had a slightly lower, or let me rephrase that, higher sensitivity to low frequencies, so the 18 hertz 18 cycles per second was within their hearing range? I think it's a possibility, yes. Hmm. Because that their skull is a different shape, they have a bigger brain capacity. But uh, another interesting point that I noticed about the elongated people of Stonehenge, their ears were further back in their head than ours are. Now that's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, I, we only have like a couple, three minutes to the bottom of the hour, so I don't want to get into this. But when we come back, I want to talk about the, your discovery and the relationship to the geometry of the circles. Let's, let's stay with the energies because the thing that struck me uh, when, I, when Robin and I went to, to uh, Stonehenge, which was late in a fall afternoon. It was, I think, 10, 15 minutes to closing time. It, it, it was raining, a slight mist. Um, a, the geometry I measured was striking. It was like when I measured at right angles on that, you know, asphalt path they have curving around the center of the standing stones. The uh, the the readings were totally off scale, dramatic, very, very, very obvious. When I went over to the alignment with the heel stone, you know, the famous winter solstice sunrise alignment, nothing, dead silence. It was like just background. And of course, we didn't 
we weren't able to stay and measure sunrise, which is one of the things I would like to do someday. But it was obvious to me that there was some kind of geometric alignment to the energies, the resonances at Stonehenge. Has have have your measurements and your guys confirmed this? Well, the axis line of the heelstone points directly to the the midsummer sunrise and the midwinter sunset. So Stonehenge isn't just about the sunrise. At this time of the year, it's about the sunset. And it's almost like at these critical points of time, there's a dip down in the energy, then a resurgence of the energy as well. I think it's quite like a cycle. So the, the most powerful point now at Stonehenge will be this evening, not, not at sunrise, when the sun sets right between the greater trilithon on that axis line. That is a huge ley line that encircles the world as well. And it's crossed by multiple lines and earth energies as well. So these are power points that have a kind of dip down and a resurgence and when we interact with those two times a lot of people that are sensitive feel this energy fill up inside of their bodies as well so there's a lot going on on the axis line alone and like you're saying Richard there's other points as well around Stonehenge that are immensely powerful and that's why uh, and that if you, you need private access to take these readings because you're quite some distance away on public access imagine being very close to the stones the closer you get the more powerful it is and that's why in my opinion english heritage keeps the general public quite away from the stones but the general public doesn't have means of measurement all they can do is go in and say oh i felt something and no one no one notices no one gives a damn they don't believe them or they do believe them but it's not like it's going to crack open any secret codes so do you think that english heritage is doing this so that scientists don't really begin to notice and measure? Yes, because they don't like you taking measurements inside. Now you have to, you know, do do a whole load of paperwork to just to, you know get in these days because it's coming back into its power. There seems to be something about Stonehenge where it's had a reboot recently and it's becoming more and more powerful. Well, that's according to the model because I've been saying for years that uh, this solstice 2019 is the end of the 26,000-year, give or take, processional cycle, and that these amplifications, these energies, these resonances uh, are rising dramatically. And that's why we're seeing the world going kind of crazy, because it's overloading an awful lot of people's circuits. Yes, I think you are absolutely correct, and that certainly uh, is in the terms of uh, not just measuring, but in dousable terms as well. We're at a critical point in the history of humanity. You can say that again. In fact, we are going to say it tomorrow night, because there's some major events going on both on and off the planet. And wait till I give you some news about what's going on with Comet, <clears throat> so-called Comet Borisov, uh, tomorrow night. Okay, we're going to return to Maria in a moment, but uh, we're going to take a break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Don't go away. I can figure out which computer here to do properly.
Hoagland here. Um, you know, in this time of uh, the season, particularly in this extraordinary geometry of energies and consciousness and resonance, we in the Western traditions, we think of Christmas, which, of course, is the season of giving. I want you to think tonight very seriously about giving to the Bahamas. We have a new um, sponsors, not exactly the right word, shall we say colleagues, uh, joint uh, partners in trying to make this a better world. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, which is our homepage, click, uh, click on that. That will take you to uh, uh, where we lay out the shows. At the very top, you'll see a banner which says, Save Lives, Pure Water for the Bahamas. Click on that. And right there under the banner, again, you'll see a, a little thing that says, Yes, I want to help. Click on that. You can give the gift of life tonight. You can actually provide incredible opportunities for endless drinking water. I mean, one of these bottles, these incredible technological bottles, kind of takes the place of almost 500 ordinary bottles of purified water. The difference is that you can put any kind of water in this technology, and the water will be crystal clear and pure to over 9999 percent and there's no limit you can buy one bottle and give us a donation you can give five bottles you can give ten bottles if you've really got you know the uh, the, uh, the the goods you can give you can give as much water the water of life as you possibly could ever imagine that people in a desperate situation suffering the aftermath still Something like 60 to 70,000 people were decimated in the northern Bahamas because of uh, uh, the hurricane, which sat there for days, churning and churning and churning. Imagine life-giving water to save people at this special time of the year from, from death. So think about it. Go to that page. Click on the Yes, I Want to Help and give the gift of life. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this special solstice program, December 21, 2019, with all kinds of really interesting and extraordinary things going on around the world. So, Maria, let's take up this differentiation between the geometry of these circles. What kind of brought this dichotomy to your attention, and how did you come to arrive at your model that basically the circles were reflecting the uh, literal geometric shape of the two types of people who lived and worshipped and used them. 
Uh, no, I think it's the 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 barrows, the long barrows, and, and not necessarily the, the the stone circles as such, because the elongated skulled people tended to build very elongated shaped long barrows, and the round skull people would build uh, round barrows. So that's that's the the model of that. But what the the cultures were looking for in the land was circular earth energies and a spiral earth energy pattern that is emitted by very very deep water and these these patterns uh, were integrated into the foundation of the stone circles which would generate the kind of uh, energy because uh, any water diviner of worth and merit would uh, tell you that underground water creates a change in the gravitational field of earth itself because it's generating a, a lot of energy and a lot of negative ions as well can be measured coming out of the ground. So I think that the, the styles of monument were more reflective of the, of the, the long barrows. And for listeners that don't know what a long barrow is, imagine a very long earthen, uh, sometimes up to 370 feet long are some of the long barrows of earth. And then there's uh, an a, a area where you have megalithic or wooden chambers to go inside. Now, what has been recorded by the University of Reading within some of these barrows and cairns, as they're called in Scotland and uh, Wales, is that sound can be reflected back from, from the walls and becomes quite like like uh, uh, somebody else is talking and, and hearing. So so even the sound of the people can be quite unusual. And what... Uh, didn't didn't the, the BBC or New Horizons do a show some years ago where some physicist from some university set up huge speakers and kind of synthesized out of styrofoam covered with certain materials, the Stonehenge geometry, and played around and found... That the the sounds, the resonances, the the interference patterns were extraordinary in the audible, you know, sub and sub vocal range. That's right. They were professors David Keaton and Aaron Watkins uh, of Reading University, ah. and and they uh, really investigated sound uh, in these temple spaces and how it would revert back but sound quite differently to how you would have spoken it. Um, it, it, it would be quite extraordinary. But can, 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 can you just imagine assembling people and having chants like Gregorian chants, different people, a conductor maybe pointing to this sector and that sector, and they come in, they overlap. It must have been extraordinary. Yes, and if you imagine when monuments are within 200 uh, meters or so of one another. That's uh, 600 feet for us Americans. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. using European measurements uh, here. Thank you for that, Richard. Uh, and the, they're that distance apart, and sometimes even a, a bit further. Then if you were doing drumming as they explored in one monument and you're in the other monument, there's other people in the other monument, the sound of the drumming appears to come from the earth itself, rising from the floor of the other Barrow. Now, when you're outside, wait, 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 wait. Think of this though, because of the work done by a friend of mine, Boris Said, back in the um, uh, Grand Gallery and the antechambers in the, in the Great Pyramid, we know by measurements, again, sign of measurements, that the Great Pyramid is resonating, is singing, 
to the ambient frequencies of the planet all the time. And some of the models I've looked at where you add energy sources and sources of sound, uh, you could create resonance patterns that literally would shake the whole damn place. And according to Stan Tannen, that was how they literally manipulated the gravitational field of the planet, going back to what you said a moment ago, in the in the Great Pyramid. If we flash forward the film, those techniques, those sound techniques with the human voice or the coupling of many, many voices and drums, particularly the size and shape of drums, you could manipulate the frequency patterns of the stones and thereby change their hyperdimensional torsion field resonance patterns, and that would have an extraordinary effect on humans assembled in their vicinity on feast days and solstice days and days of uh, celestial alignments. I mean, we're talking an extremely sophisticated consciousness, physical technology interface at a time when nobody on this planet should have been capable, according to the kind of stodgy mainstream guys of uh, doing this. Yes, uh, that that is for sure. So when we look into these monuments and rediscover the ancient past, we're finding, you know, there's a layers of technology. There's astronomy. There's geomancy. There's sound. There's light being, you know, at this time of the year, if you're at certain monuments across the British Isles and, and Europe and elsewhere, and even America's Stonehenge is uh, from the center, there's a beautiful sunset alignment on the winter solstice. So it's about the sunrises and the sunsets, and they seem to activate the uh, lays that are also aligned to these solar events. So there's a whole load of different things coming together at these ancient sites it's kind of like that verizon commercial where they have all these streaming lines in the sky denoting the cell phone company of verizon can you imagine if you could look at the earth from orbit and look down and see the ley lines and they're dark during normal times of the year at these times of the alignment of the earth with the galactic center etc etc you could see them light up and energy flowing back and forth across them like this lit up network. I mean, it, it's, it's all there, but it's invisible because, of course, you can't see it, but humans can feel it. And that was the intention. Yes, I mean, there are those eight critical times of the ancient year, which include the, the solstices, the, the summer and the, the winter, the equinoxes, spring and autumn. And half the days between those four critical points of the, the, the solstice and the equinox, you get uh, other sensitive points that ley lines are aligned to, like Beltane, May the 1st, Lammas, August the 1st. Are these called and the, the uh, so-called cross-quarter days? That's right. They're the cross-quarter uh, days of uh, Beltane, Lammas, and the start of the Celtic year is actually Samhain, uh, November the 1st, which uh, was Christianized to Halloween. And you also have Imbolc on February the 1st. Now, all major monuments across Northwest Europe are aligned to one of these eight 
days of the solar year. They were critical times of energy points. And it's interesting to note that, you know, in the Catholicism and the Christian church, they were all Christianized those dates and made into holy days and holidays. But they come from uh, the pagan past of alignment and knowing how to manipulate these energies with uh, sound and light. And the, all of the festivals of these critical eight points of uh, the ancient pa pagan year began in the evening. And that was re recorded uh, by Julius Caesar in his Conquest of Gaul in his book called Dispata. And that's where we get the term Christmas Eve from, New Year's Eve. It's the Eve was considered the high point of the uh, day uh, as much as the dawn. And that's why we have so many monuments aligned to the midwinter sunset. Now, in England, do do people generally make a big deal about midwinter sunset alignments at Stonehenge, like this evening when it was sunset many hours ago in Britain, or is this kind of submerged under the, you know, the hype about sunrise? There is a uh, Stonehenge will be open at sunrise and sunset and the, the serious archaeoastronomers and uh, the people that really know about the monument will be there for the sunset because that's its access alignment. Whereas the kind of general uh, populace would be there for more of the sunrise. But when you, when you look to how the monument is angled, that's its critical time. That's its energy uh, time, for, for instance. So yes, it will be the, this evening and yesterday evening, which is its critical point. But we know that there's a difference between the winter solstice uh, and midwinter day as well. That, that midwinter's a critical time as well because three days after the summer solstice or three days after the winter solstice, that's when the sun moves in a, a bit of an angle. So three days after today on the winter uh, solstice the sun will start rising in the northeast again and that again is a very critical point uh, in the ancient calendar year where the sun is gearing up its power again and the lays like you that beautiful description you gave earlier they all light up again it's a reboot time as well so there's those two power days midwinter's day and the winter solstice you know, for folks like us who've been looking at this from an unusual perspective, and we've, I think we've figured it out. I think we understand now why these ancient people spent extraordinary amounts of human capital and labor and assembled people, you know, from all over as far as they could to lift and move and position these stones, because this was this was essential for the well-being of of the uh, tribe, of the group, of the culture of. Of these civilizations then we go through this period where modern archaeologists go gosh why do they spend so much time and energy doing this is there is there any beginning of the crossover where the mainstream guys kind of have figured out that us guys have got it and they need to talk to us more that these are active energetic resonating technologies to interact with humans at these particular geometries to basically enhance and recodify their well-being? Or are we talking past each other like everybody in politics these days seems to be doing? 
<laughs> uh, that's uh, that's that's really good. I think uh, speaking from here in in the in the UK, there there is a bit of a divide between archaeologists and you know alternative researchers, for want of a better title. There there is there is a divide there, but I I think that you know when people come together and discuss uh, their chosen specialities then we we get more uh, and more answers so i think it's good that there's shows like yours where where information can be put out to the general public do you have contact with these professors who measure the the sound properties of stonehenge and a couple other places I've met some of the the top archaeologists yes that are associated with uh, with their different specialities yes has has english heritage allowed them to actually measure the real monuments? Because I, what I saw were recreations of the geometry looking at simply, you know, bouncing sound off surfaces. But I don't know whether they actually carried out measurements at Stonehenge or at a various place, et cetera. Uh, Professor David Keaton and uh, his partner uh, Aaron Watkins, yes, they were actually went into Stonehenge and what they discovered was on the solar access line that we uh, discussed, which is the rising midsummer sun and the setting of the uh, winter solstice sun, that's the access line, that's what the heel stones align to and that's what the greater trilithons align to at Stonehenge, they're massive megalithic features. Then on that line, if you spoke on it, you, your voice is more louder. The sound is louder. And if you get off that access line, it, your voice becomes more muted. So they call that not a, a solar access line, but a sound line. And they, they also found that if you go outside of the stone circle, even though there's gaps in the stones, yeah, uh, which you know everybody knows about at Stonehenge, large gaps, uh, in fact, the sound doesn't travel outside. It stays within the, the monuments and even the way the stones of Stonehenge are carved and worked they're concave in the uh, horseshoe section of Stonehenge and that bounces sound off as oh well they found God. that the shape of it uh, is very important in fact all coves that's where you have three stones together like I don't know if you can remember the northern inner circle of Avebury Richard which is the cove stones that yes. massive big Stone, sound bounces off cove stones as well, just like at the horseshoe effect of Stonehenge. Yeah, that's part of those two circles that have long since disappeared, except for the remnants in the ground. And those are the two circles that were lined off due north by 19.5 degrees. So somebody knew the physics. Somebody knew about this geometry, and they used it as a technology. That's right. Uh, the Neolithic people made all the uh, surfaces at Stonehenge curved and smoothed, and they fitted it together to make a perfect ring, knowing that the sound would be uh, very different by adding those specialities to the stones, whereas an archaeologist would say, oh, they just wanted it to look smooth. That's you know, you know, it se it to seems it. to me one of the really obvious experiments, <clears throat> your mission should you choose to accept it, Maria, would, <laughs> would be to get a bunch of local church choirs, get the professors back, bring those people into these sectors at Stonehenge, uh, have them chant in sequence, you know, kind of like a program, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, that kind of thing, and then measure with instrumentation and the Akatron 
the energetic effects of people replicating what ancient cultures must have done and then filming it all for the BBC or Horizons or whatever. I mean, that would be a stunning audio-visual spectacle because you could have people outside that would say, I don't hear anything, or I don't hear, you know, it's very muted, or inside it's so different. In other words, you could do this as a television event. Remember Roddenberry's rule, if it's real, it will be on television. And it would be an incredible crossover between what we guys now know and what the mainstream desperately needs to know. Yes, that's uh, that would make uh, you know interest in research and television at uh, at the same time. And there has been a few experiments done on tops of mounds uh, with sound, and it seems to travel further again if you're on the top uh, in distance as well. There's been some done on that, but uh, but I think as well what the ancients were were doing. Uh, they knew so much about what was happening in the Earth. And, for example, one experiment done in the 1980s uh, by Don Robbins was uh, listening to a stone circle called the Rollwright Ring in Oxfordshire. And he noticed at the equinoxes, the spring and autumn equinoxes, that these stones released uh, ultrasound but not inside of the circle, outside, as if they are pushing out uh, the, the sounds that we can't uh, hear. It's outside of our audible hearing range, as if it's irrigating the surrounding countryside. So the ancient... Wait, 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 about... what, what do you mean irrigating? Well, sort of like uh, pushing it out as if it's, it's essential to the countryside uh, that it has to be released outside and not inside of the, the circle because the inside of the circle was really quiet uh, in terms of the, oh, uh, the you know, ultrasound. How incredibly interesting. I mean, this is so multi-layered, Maria, and so sophisticated is is part of the academics being so stodgy about this is basically culture envy. They can't imagine that their ancient, ancient, ancient ancestors were brighter than they are. Uh, exa exactly so. so. So we're talking old men's egos. <laughs> Yes, I mean, uh, so it's it's uh, so much going on at these uh, ancient sites that that were, you know, the ultrasound at Rollwright was found quite by accident. Uh, but when it was researched by, uh, he was an archaeologist actually, uh, uh, Don Don Robbins, and uh, it was then the moment with my goodness, what is going on? And at these critical times of the solar cycle, not at other times of the year, and. Avery responded at Beltane, which is May the 1st, <laughs> when that releases uh, ultrasound as well. And the lay that goes, the ley line that goes through Avery is associated to the Beltane sunrise, which was discovered by John Michel. You know, I just had a great idea. If someone, <clears throat> hint, hint, were to approach the current owners of the Red Lion, and who I know very well, and tell them this, and have them do some kind of festival or conference or whatever and get people to, to resonate. I mean, who doesn't love to be part of a sing-along? And it's like, you know, the more people you accumulate, the good singers kind of resonate the, the not so good. So it ultimately sounds really cool. I mean, you could create events that would be the crossover, again, on television 
So the academics would have to pay attention. There's something going on. Yes, that's uh, that's a uh, that's a really good idea. I, I certainly know the owners, uh, the and the management of the Red Lion very very well. What better way to, to democratize <laughs> to make kind of mainline this? And it's all kind of like a do-it-yourself project because everybody can get involved. Nobody has to be left out. Yeah, it'd be a, it'd be a wondrous event. Oh, I can just I can just hear it. I was going to say I can just see it, but I can hear it. Okay, um, if you go to Radio with Pictures, um, someone, I think Kintia said earlier this evening that someone, one of our listeners, sent a GIF, which I posted as my number two item in Radio with Pictures. Remember how to get there. Go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner with Maria for Sunday, or Sunday, Saturday, December 21. That will take you to her guest page. Uh, click on the fast links, Richard's items on the page there near the top. That will take you to my stuff. There's the Solstice Silent Minute, which you want to maybe click on and watch later. And then below that, item number two is this really interesting graphic visually showing this energetic uh, beaming of something into the cosmos uh, during this uh, alignment night. Silent night, holy night, alignment night. Anyway, um, we got about uh, five minutes to the end of the hour. I keep doing this. I have so many questions that I want to get to you. Remind me at the top of the next hour that we're going to talk about the round-headed people and the elongated-headed people and uh, the these monuments that reflect this geometry and what the deeper levels of of this um, of this uh, you know model might might imply. Before we get to that, though, let me ask you this one. You mentioned earlier that these circular monuments, these henges, are built over ancient water that will amplify or help to amplify the energies. Do we have systematic survey data that really confirms this? In other words, where you have a circle, is there always ancient buried water, or do you have circles where there is no water and they function the same or they function differently? Most stone circles and monuments are sited above uh, either an aquifer of groundwater, which can be measured very, very easily by, you know, waterboards technology. I mean, I used to find water, as a dowser, find water leaks for the, the waterboard, and they've let me have a look at their, their you know, um, plans and uh, organizations of the underground water in their terms, and then the two uh, coincide. But in Dowsing terms, there's primary water, and that's not groundwater, aquifer, rainwater that's fallen over, you know, could have been thousands of years ago. There's primary So, but hang on, water. hang on. So, this is underground water in a reservoir that's been kind of locked away from a long time ago. And just sit. We have a few of these places here in, in New Mexico. They just found, and it's basically primeval. It's prehistoric. It's thousands of years old. Not part of the circulating aquifer atmospheric interaction. It's really kind of an ancient, ancient archive of ancient water. That's right. That's one type of water. That's uh, you know uh, in ancient aquifers, and a well by Avebury is thirty thousand years old, according to the water. Board. Holy cow! Mm, wow. That's how 
that's but there's another type of uh, water which I'll just touch upon because we're coming up to the break now which is called primary water which is according to esoteric water diviners water born within the earth independent of rainfall so you have the rainfall water and you have primary mystic water and both waters give off a different dousable pattern recognized by water diviners one is a spiral and one is a wavy pattern like the symbol of water worldwide that's what the ancients were looking for two different types of water how interesting okay you're right we're at the uh, top of the hour my guest this morning is maria wheatley and you're on the other side of midnight we are uh, we're coming up to this break um when we come back you know if i do things correctly we're going to be talking about um, uh, the differentiation of the peoples that used and built these circles and what they may have intended uh, in terms of cultural differentiation. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. 